Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Our last episode with Ben Carr and Emperor Norton I was our 100th episode, and I didn't even realize it until after I uploaded it to the interwebs. Thanks, everybody, for sticking with me, Jimmy, and the 90-odd historians and fellow travelers who have agreed to talk to us. We've been at this for a bit over three years now, and I've had a lot of fun with it. And what the heck, let's do a bunch more. For example, today I'm talking to Larry Tai, a journalist and the director of Health Coverage Fellowship, who just published a book this week called Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Joe McCarthy. Today we will discuss the book, Larry's background, and his take on journalism in a time of pandemic. What is your name and what do you do? Larry Tai, and I do two things. I run a fellowship program for health journalists, and I write books. Excellent. We're going to talk about all of that as we uh, go along here, but can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Sure. Um, I went a long time ago to Brown University, where I got an undergraduate degree, and then I spent a lot of time deferring different graduate schools, but ending up accidentally in journalism because it was a way I wanted to see the country. And I ended up falling in love with writing and the kind of storytelling that you do as a journalist. I come from New England, but I used my journalism as a way to see the country. I spent time at a wonderful little newspaper in the heart of Alabama. I went from there to what used to be a terrific newspaper called the Courier-Journal in Louisville, Kentucky. And then I spent the bulk of my career as a journalist at the Boston Globe. In the middle of that time as a journalist, when I was at the Boston Globe, um, I, having never gone back to graduate school, took a year off to do a fellowship program at Harvard called the Neiman Fellowship, where a dozen journalists from America and another dozen from around the world come together and for a year do anything they want or do nothing at Harvard's undergraduate and graduate schools. And that's basically what I did for half of my career. Um, 20 years ago, I, after I'd come back to the Boston Globe from a Neiman Fellowship, I realized that I wanted to try a longer form of writing. I had, uh, I got a contract to write a first book and I fell in love with long form writing. I went back to the newspaper uh, for two years, but during that two years, I took um, other book leaves. I ended up, um, when I was about to start on a third book, deciding that the Globe had been incredibly indulgent in giving me all these leaves and I had to try doing this full time. Uh, so for the last 20 years, I've been writing books full time. And then every year we're going into our 19th year of this now, I've run a program where a dozen of the best health reporters from around the country come in for an intensive nine days and nights of training in Boston, underwritten by a series of foundations where we help these journalists become a little bit better in covering everything from public health to mental health to these days, pandemics. Yeah, that's an interesting and varied career. And so when you were looking to go into this fellowship, did you 
so you, you you got the so you were as a reporter you decided you like to do the long form type stuff and then you wanted to kind of develop this fellowship to help uh kind of cultivate uh health journalists so is this something that you built from scratch or is this something that you worked with someone else on how did you actually establish this fellowship so i had a friend who had been um, a longtime friend and source when i was at the boston globe covering health issues he was going off to start what ended up being the biggest foundation in massachusetts on health issues and he had an interest in developing a program for journalists i had an interest in seeing a program like that work well, um, I agreed that I would write him a proposal on how to set up a fellowship like this, but I wouldn't have anything to do with it. He agreed he'd hire me to write this proposal and that I wouldn't have anything to do with it. And then I fell in love with the idea of the thing when I was writing this um, proposal on how it would be set up. He liked the idea well enough that um, 19 years ago, we came together to make this thing happen. Um, it is, in this foundation's history, the only one of its programs that's been going for a full 19 years. And over the years, enough other foundations bought into the idea that they would ask us every year, can we sponsor a journalist from California or from New Hampshire um, or a national journalist? And right now, We've got more foundations than we know what to do with. Um, and at a moment when health journalism is what looks like all that journalism is today, when you read the New York Times or the Boston Globe or the Manchester Union Leader, you see that 80% of the stories these days are about health issues. So I think this is more important than ever and more important to have journalists trained well enough that they can do it responsibly and so that's what we continue to do. Oh yeah, most definitely. This this time frame, or the, the, we're recording this in uh, late May. Yeah, the, the, there is obviously a huge importance in having health health issues covered responsibly by journalists. Because first, I mean, obviously there's the pandemic, and there's kind of all the scientific and medical and public health stuff that kind of goes into the management of the pandemic. But then there's also kind of the fine line you have to walk politically. Because there's also this sizable, I don't want, it's not a majority, but it's a very, at least a vocal minority of people who are pushing back against the whole concept of the pandemic and, and any kind of quarantine or stay at home measures or wearing masks. So there's, I imagine there must be kind of a fine line that journalists have to walk here in presenting information while also trying to manage the response from that, from, from that minority of Americans. Do you see any of that kind of playing out on your end? So I see it all playing out. They're walking perpetually a fine line and doing their work. They've got to have thick skin because it's guaranteed that whatever they write is going to be attacked by one of one side or another. And they've got to be worried about their own safety because when journalists are out covering any of these stories, by definition, if they're out there in person covering a breaking pandemic, they're at a higher risk than just about anybody other than a direct frontline healthcare reporter, healthcare um, worker in terms of being exposed to the virus. And we've been running for the last couple months, a weekly series of Zooms where I have in people ranging from Watergate journalist, Bob Woodward, to the health ministers of various countries around the world, to mayors and governors and 
health experts to talk about different discrete issues in covering the pandemic. And we invite every time we do this, 450 health journalists all around the world. And I'm shocked, even though they're all on incredible deadlines, how many of them tune in because they want some sort of a network and some sort of sense of holding hands with other health journalists and figuring out how to make sense of things because of all the narrow lines that they're walking. Is there a, and I imagine, I mean, journalists are, since they are professionally trained and they have usually pretty extensive backgrounds in journalism. And so, like you said, they they probably have a naturally thick skin just because the nature of the job. Do you, do you ever come across situations where journalists might start to question the stuff that they're saying in when they're facing a backlash that is usually very vocal? I'm thinking about, you know, Twitter with like the armies of, you know, bots and all of that that are trying to attack uh, the people that are advocating for public health measures and all of that. Uh, Do you, do you see journalists ever starting to kind of question themselves or is it just something where you just keep your head down, keep plowing forward and, you know, hope that the the truth wins the day kind of thing? So in the end, they put their head down and plow, plow forward. But one of the things that readers and listeners don't see is that they question themselves every 10 minutes. Um, They question themselves because so many people are questioning them. They question themselves because by definition, journalists are people um, who, even as they've got the security to go out and tell a story every day, they know that they're not experts in this and that they ought to be questioning that any good journalist or any good author has to question what they're doing. And in the end, you've got to make a decision and come down one way or the other. But I think that the questioning is perpetual. They wouldn't be good at what they're doing if they were so pig-headed or so self-assured that they didn't raise doubts. And yet they know that while tomorrow they may be able to correct and may have to correct what they did today, they've got to push ahead and get something out there. People have a right to know People in these days have a need to know. And at the same time as there's been a whole aura in this recent era of politics, questioning fake news and and our journalists telling the truth, the fact is that all sides of the debate depend on journalists to get the story out there. And our public health and safety depends on their getting it right. Our economy depends on their being balanced and how they cover all this stuff. And they're trying to weigh all of this at the same time that they're working, you know, 15 hours a day and seven days a week. And so it's a profession that these days isn't a whole lot of fun, but is incredibly important. It's also a profession where counterintuitively at the very moment that the American public and the public around the world is counting on journalists to tell this story, there are also news outlets are in crisis. They're not getting the ad revenue that they depend on. Newspapers depend on um, businesses like restaurants and retail establishments to pay their bills, to buy ads. And when those businesses are shut down, journalists, uh, journalism outlets are in financial crisis. Journalists around the country at the biggest newspaper outlets are going on furlough. Most of my friends in journalism are working four days a week or at least being paid for only four days a week. And yet their editors know they've got to be there seven days a week. 
So at a moment when your own paychecks are dwindling and when your workload is rising and when the stakes of what you're covering are higher than ever, you've really got to believe in this profession of journalism to continue doing it. Yeah, that I've been, I've been hearing when I listen to podcasts that are that are put out by news magazines or newspapers. I've been hearing about kind of the the problems that the ad revenue problem that you're talking about there, and it is kind of terrifying, especially when you think about, like you said, public health journalists losing their jobs or being expected to work less or whatever in the middle of a public health crisis. And so when we depend on the the accurate, unbiased news. Uh, again, there's the whole fake news argument that's kind of floating around on the margins. But uh, putting that aside, you've got um, the vast majority of health of, of health journalists are trying their best to create kind of an unbiased, accurate view of it. And if those are the people that are going to be laid off, then we run into a problem where we're going to we're going to end up with people that are not so scrupulous about bias and all of that. They're getting paid by outside sources that might step in and start spreading fake news of their own, if you want to call it that. And that is a terrifying potential outcome for all this, especially as the crisis kind of lingers onward. Um, So it is terrifying. And um, I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast to um, be willing to pay the cost of a subscription for a newspaper, for instance, rather than trying to get it free via Facebook or um, other aggregators, that someday we're going to figure out a new model to make journalism as profitable as it was when I got into it 40 years ago. But until then, it's the consuming public that's got to pay for this. And I think that um, your listeners are smart enough to understand that. But every time I see my subscription price to the three daily newspapers I get go up. On the one hand, you know, part of me says, geez, is it worth it? And yet I realize that it's got to go up and we've got to keep paying for it. And those those um, news gatherers have got to be going out there and doing what they do, because if they don't, we're in trouble. Yeah, it's one of those things that's really easy to take for granted until it's gone. And then yes. what do you do once that once that profession has been kind of wiped out? Who what are the really good health journalists that you follow that you think are providing the best view of this of the pandemic as we're going through it? So I depend every day on three different levels of coverage of the health news. And rather than giving you specific journalist names because they won't mean things to most of your listeners, I'm gonna tell you the three publications that I read. And this is something that is translatable to anybody wherever they live. They just substitute different names. I read because I'm working and living right now on Cape Cod. I read a newspaper called the Cape Cod Times, the local newspaper, which on a very immediate basis covers what's going on in my backyard. I read every day the Boston Globe because it's the best regional newspaper. It covers what's going on in the state of Massachusetts and in the wider region of New England. And it does a great job in doing that on these health issues. It devotes 80% of its newspaper these days to this kind of health coverage that we all are starved for. And every day I read the New York Times and it does what I think is the best job of any newspaper in the world 
and covering what's going on nationally and worldwide. But the Washington Post does a great job. The Wall Street Journal does a great job. There are newspapers around the world that are doing it equally well for their country and on a global tape. But I think that you really have to these days to feel informed about all these three different levels that we're part of. We are all incredibly tied to our local situation, but our regions and our states are the ones who are deciding the rules that we're playing by in terms of um, the very different situations state by state in reopening of our world. And if there's anything that ever showed that we are part of a global uh, context, it is a global pandemic. Yes. And that's good advice for uh, reading local, regional, and national journals. I think that makes a lot of sense. So let's uh, switch over a little bit and talk about your new project that you're working on. Uh, you said that you left journalism a while back so you could focus on long-form writing. So can you tell us about your projects? What have you been working on? Sure. So I have about to come out in July, an eighth book. And it's a book that is called Demagogue, the life and long shadow of Senator Joseph McCarthy. And it revisits one of the uh, most caricatured and one of the most despicable people in American history, the Senator from Wisconsin, Joe McCarthy. And it revisits him at this time for two reasons. One is because I think in this era, um, we have to understand the very resonant situation of McCarthyism and of the kind of demagoguery that McCarthy represented. And he was the archetype for American demagogues. He wasn't the first, and he certainly wasn't the last, but he became the model for all the bullies who came after him. But I also think that when you look at a figure who has had dozens of books written about him, you've got to, to justify a new one, there's got to be something new to say. And I had the luck of having made available to me all of the personal and professional papers that McCarthy's widow donated 60 years ago to his alma mater, to Marquette University. And those papers have been gathering dust for the last half century. And every biographer that's tried to write about McCarthy has begged to get access to those papers. And nobody has... I was given access, I was given access that was an unusual kind of access, which was exclusive access. The people who control the access said, you can have a look at it, but once you have a look at it, it goes under lock and key again. So I got access to his personal and professional papers. I got access to his military and medical records. And I took the first deep dive that anybody has ever taken into the 9,000 pages of transcripts of all of McCarthy's closed door hearings. And what I hope all of that yielded, and I'm too close and too biased to say, but I hope it yielded a new and more nuanced sense of who this guy McCarthy was, who he was in the good sense of why people in Wisconsin elected him and re-elected him over the years. And there had to be some reason why they were doing that. And a sense of why the country made him in the 1950s the second most popular figure in America, trailing only the very popular president, Dwight Eisenhower. And if that's looking at 
what it was about McCarthy that was appealing. I also was trying to understand what was it about him that made him the all-American villain. And I think the book gave us a bit of a new sense of both of those sides of him and of why he matters today. Just as a procedural question, do you know why they were so restrictive about those sources? Yes. I think the, his family was restrictive because they were not eager to have the public see these records that the widow had donated. And the I think um, nobody was quite sure what was in those stacks and stacks of files, but it was easier to say no than to say yes. And I don't know whether it was the moment that I asked or am I being enough of a pain in the neck that I kept asking and asking? Um, and I don't know why it was. And I was really shocked. And I think the archivists at Marquette were shocked when I was given access. Um, and I hope that I'm doing justice by that access in terms of trying to tell an important story and a fair-minded story. Um, in terms of why the military decided to turn over his medical records and his military records, again, I don't know whether it was just that enough time had passed or whether I was the biggest pain in the neck out there. But this all happened and lots of other people showed me um, memoirs that their relatives who had been an integral part of the McCarthy story had written and that had never been made public. I saw his widow's unpublished memoir, all kinds of things that, that even with all the great books out there, Nobody could answer a lot of questions about him until they had access to his own records. And now we do. That's amazing that you got access to all of those. And I'm glad that you mentioned earlier that you realized that you needed to say something new in this book in order to justify a new book on McCarthy. That's one of the messages that we who are history instructors, we kind of have to keep telling our students also is that, you know, you always have to come up with something that's new. You don't, you can't just reinvent the wheel. So, you know, if you're going to write a paper on, you know, the causes of the Civil War, or a book on the cause of the Civil War, you have to say something new. And that's pretty difficult to do on some topics like the Civil War, for example, which has 1000s of books written on it. And I imagine the similar similar with McCarthy, there's been a lot that's been written, a lot of it is kind of overlaps with each other. And so, uh, you know, you don't have to go through and give away any spoilers on the book or anything, but what generally did you find that was different in your research compared to what you read in previous uh, accounts of, the, of McCarthy? So what I found was um, a lot of surprising places where the world, the world of journalism, the world of historians, and the wider world thought that McCarthy was a bold-faced liar, um, including many interesting things about his military record, that in fact, he was telling the truth. But I found on the other side of that, that uh, the reason everybody distrusted what he was saying about whether he had earned all the medicals and been the World War II hero that he said, was because he lied about so many other things. And when you lie two or three or 200 times, the 201st time, the world, and especially the skeptical world of journalists, are going to assume that that's a lie too. And with McCarthy, sorting out what was true from what was real was interesting and fun. And I had written a book, an earlier book, my first book, was on a man named Edward L. Bernays. And he was the so-called father of public relations. I called the book the father of spin. 
He was Sigmund Freud's nephew, and he took his uncle's ideas on why people behave the way they do and used it on behalf of clients that ranged from GE to General Motors to Procter & Gamble to half of the important politicians in America. He created the profession of public relations. And I'm bringing that up in this context because with Bernays, I started thinking about the world as a spun world, as a world where a lot of people who wanted us to buy a certain product or buy into a certain political figure would tell us half-truths. And so I became a skeptic. You're always a skeptic if you're a journalist. When you're writing about the man who created the profession of public relations, you become an ultra-skeptic. And what it took to write a book about Joe McCarthy and be fair to him, but also fair to the history of that era, was ultimate skepticism. It was assuming that everything he was saying was a lie, but also being open to the fact that he might have been telling the truth. And it was using all these new documents to help sift out fact from fiction about one of the most written about and most controversial people in this nation's history. Yeah, that must be a huge undertaking is to try to sort out all the truths from the lies, especially with someone like Joe McCarthy, who made his name on making outrageous claims. And if your entire reputation is based on outrageous claims, yeah, it becomes hard to kind of parse out which outrageous claim has any truth to it, which outrageous claims do not. And so, uh, you know, obviously we can think about the stuff like the, uh, the the Wheeling speech where he supposedly held up his list of names of communist sympathizers in the Truman administration. And there's kind of famously among historians anyway, when we kind of present McCarthy, it's always followed up with the but he never actually gave this list out, or maybe if he did, it the numbers never seem to quite add up. The numbers seem to change from, you know, speech to speech, and so I can imagine that that must be hard because the stories, as far as I'm, I'm no expert in Joe McCarthy. I you know a lot more than I do, but it, it's always kind of seems to me like his his claims were just changing all the time, and so I imagine it's not just a matter of fact-checking a specific speech because in the following speech he may something he may say something that's completely different and then it's like but it's the same but he's making the same argument and so i imagine that must be difficult to kind of track those fact checks over time so it is difficult and one of the things you do when you write any book of history and certainly when you write biography is you have to know every word that's ever been written about or by the person that you're writing about so i had all the advantage of all the work that everybody had done before me, but I had something they didn't, which I had in the Wheeling speech. I had all his files on Wheeling, and I had his actual records that nobody had ever seen on what he was thinking and what how he pieced together what he said there. And sort of the, the overview, the sky view of the whole thing is that on the one hand, Joe McCarthy, when he went to Wheeling with two different speeches in his briefcase, was an ultimate opportunist looking for an issue that he could rise to political success, to the spotlight that he had craved and never gotten as a young backbencher of a U.S. senator. Uh, so he would have, if, if you had told him that writing about men going to the moon was the way to get public attention, he would have been writing about that instead of about communism. Whatever the issue was, he wanted an issue that was going to work for him, and he made communism or anti-communism work for him. So ultimate opportunist at that moment. 
But again, he was a man of contradictions. By the time he died, he had become a true believer. He started believing all the things he had said in Wheeling and in the Army, McCarthy hearings, and in all the things any of your listeners who know anything about McCarthy, um, it was very easy at the end to assume that he was just a con man and a snake oil salesman. And I think he had become something that may be more dangerous in many ways than that, which was a true believer, especially if those beliefs are founded on as shaky a foundation as his were. Yeah, that's interesting because the, uh, again, the kind of the consensus historical view on McCarthy is in some ways kind of a tragic figure because, you know, I, but I think a lot of that kind of builds on the whole thing about, you know, after the army hearings and he goes into decline and eventually drinks himself to death. Um, so I guess there's kind of that tragic ending to it, but so it's, he, yeah, he's, he's always been kind of presented as a contradiction and he certainly sounds like that contradiction is kind of continuing into your work and it creates a very complicated, a view of a, like you said, a very important person in American politics. And I... What I want to take, so everything you just said is exactly true. And the ultimate tragedy was at the very end. The last thing we all do in our life is we die. And we die with a story being told about how we died. And the story that the press told, and the story that the official coroner report told, and the story that his doctors at Bethesda Naval Hospital told was maybe in a way that's fitting for Joe McCarthy, a fabrication. He didn't die of what the press and the coroner and his doctors said he died of. And it's not me sort of trying to pick things out of the air saying what the real story was. It's having had access to every one of his medical records from Bethesda Naval Hospital. And I sat down with a group of four of the smartest doctors in the world, a guy who had just stepped down as dean of Harvard Medical School, a guy who was a editor-in-chief emeritus of the New England Journal of Medicine, and two other doctors who specialized in the area that McCarthy's medical ailments were in. And we tried to figure out from his records what he died of. And there was a consensus among the four of them that he died of something that for diplomatic reasons um, and for not embarrassing McCarthy and his family were different than what the official record said. And it just, it seemed to me fitting and yet tragic that even when it came to something that should have been as straightforward as his death, it was couched in lies and half-truths and only now 60-something years later, can we tell the true story, not just of how McCarthy lived his life, but how his life ended? That's interesting. And and it does, <laughs> in a way, it does kind of fit with the story of McCarthy that even the accounts of his death would be altered for, I don't know if that's for political gain or like you said, just to kind of uh, make things easier on the family. So that's really interesting. And so as to the actual cause of death, you cover that in the book. You don't have to give it away if you don't want to, but is is that something that we can find? I won't tell you what the actual cause was. What I will tell you is that nobody that I can think of that I know of in the world ever had their demise as carefully recorded as McCarthy. He had a medical aide by him in the hospital for most of the last two days of his life. 
And so every word that he uttered, every treatment that he got, every thought of every doctor and nurse who was there was recorded. And we don't have to speculate what he was feeling, what he was thinking, and what he was suffering, because it's all there recorded in a way that is a historian and a biographer's dream. Oh, that's excellent. And it makes sense because in a person who built his reputation on dealing with conspiracies, like conspiracies among the State Department, the Truman administration, the Eisenhower administration, the army, uh, his whole life and career was built on the idea of conspiracy. And so it certainly makes sense that for him dying, (laughs) it makes perfect sense that the doctors and everybody would want to document that as thoroughly as possible because you want to try to cut off any future conspiracy thought. Um, You don't want to make, you don't, because... And again, the 50s were a bit of a different time, but I can imagine if that type of thing was to happen in 2020, that there would instantly be people online talking about how the, you know, the the deep state army uh, killed him or something like that. You can look at like the Jeffrey Epstein, all the memes and all of that that was talking about how his surrounding his death. And so I can imagine there would be conspiracy theories all over the place there. And so it makes perfect sense for the the doctors and everybody to document everything thoroughly to try to back up their the story that they're going to have to tell when after the guy dies. Yeah. So the only thing I would disagree in what you just said is um, when you said the 50s were a very different time. They were in a million ways a very different time. I wish they were more different than today. And I wish we weren't seeing a repeat of so many of the themes of McCarthy's era. When you read the daily headlines today, there are so many things that were taken directly in language, in strategy, in tactics, in politics from the Joe McCarthy era. And that's why I think that to understand what's going on in today's world, you as a historian and your listeners understand that understanding history is critical and there's no more critical piece of history than the 1950s and Joe McCarthy to make sense of today's world. Yes, that's true. And I um, that that's a very good point. And the 50s are formative for America in so many ways. I mean, there's with the McCarthy and the political side of it, but also the civil rights. There's there's a lot of um, kind of themes going in the 1950s that we're still grappling with today. And that's, that, that, that's a very good point. Thank you for making that. Um, so did you have anything else that uh, you think Uh, anything else about the book that you think we should know about before we all run out and buy it? No. So the only thing that I would say, and it's about the book, but it's about the bigger theme that your podcast is about, which is writing about history, covering history. Um, There is nothing in the world. I've done a lot of fun things in my life. Being a journalist and traveling around the world for newspapers was fun. Training, helping train next generations of journalists is fun. There is nothing more fun than sitting down for two years with a figure who was such a piece of our history and getting to look through and read these fascinating documents, whatever the anxieties and the angst of writing books and of fact-checking and of doing the million um, boring little pieces that doing serious research involves, in the end, it's an incredible luxury and I encourage anybody who hasn't tried it to sit down and just go deep into something that they're fascinated by. And it is easier today than it has ever been. When I started writing books, you had to go to libraries and go through horrible microfilm machines to read old newspaper clippings and do all these things that require just physically um, 
so much more rigorous activity. And today, all of this stuff, so much of this stuff is online and easily available. Getting old books and manuscripts is easier. So doing history is easier than it's ever been. And I think it's more fun, at least for me, than it's ever been. Oh, yes. I'll second all of that. Um, I did my PhD dissertation was on uh, Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California. And the kind of gist of the whole project was basically to talk about how California took the lead in environmental legislation in the 1960s and has still in many ways kept its lead in environmental uh, reg regulations and, and policymaking. And, but the interesting part was that that was happening while Ronald Reagan was governor. And so it's fascinating to sit down. I spent a couple of weeks in the, in the Reagan library in, in the Simi Valley, California, and just looking at all of the various documents that were that were created during his years as governor. And it was just fascinating to sit there and think about how this man who has you know, from our modern political perspective, fits very neatly into one one side of the political spectrum. But uh, in his early, the earlier part of his career, it was actually much more complicated than that. There was um, a lot of stuff that would today be categorized as somewhat liberal in his politics. Um, obviously, it didn't last. And but even as you know, as he got older, he still he was still much more of a pragmatist than a, an ideologue. And so it's interesting to sit there and look deeply through the documents about a specific person because you do walk away with a very different understanding of how that person operated and what that person believed than you might get from a more um, much more cursory kind of introduction uh, like you were saying there so that's really interesting so i'm jealous of um, as an old environmental reporter and as somebody who covered reagan's environmental uh years in the white house the his years in the white house from an environmental take um, I'm jealous of your getting to see those early years, and I'm also intrigued. My last book was a biography of Bobby Kennedy, who started out as a Joe McCarthy cold warrior and ended up as a liberal icon. My current book is on Joe McCarthy, who started out as an FDR New Dealer and ended up as the defining figure of the Cold War. And when you see these political transformations in people, it is intriguing, it's counterintuitive, and it's what makes being a historian fun. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Reagan has kind of followed the same pattern as um, McCarthy in that, yeah, he was, as we all know, I mean, he was an FDR Democrat for a long time, became a Republican in the 50s and, you know, became famous on the, you know, the time for choosing and choose the conservative path and all of that. But when he was governor, yeah, he was much more pragmatic The for environmental perspective for the environmental policy making and all of that, Reagan was all about, um, you know, he, he liked to kind of portray himself as a Westerner, as a cowboy with, you know, wide open skies, wide open land and all of that. And of course, air and water pollution doesn't look good when you're trying to present yourself as kind of this Westerner and, and you know, the rugged outdoorsman and all of that. And if, the, and if all the, the sky is poisoned and the waterways are poisoned and all of that, that's very bad for kind of your self-conception as, as a Westerner. And so, from an environmental perspective as governor, he was very strong on things like cleaning up the air, cleaning up water, uh, kind of those those types of obvious pollution. And so and during his years as governor, so they, you know, California created the Air Resources Board, a Water Resources Board that were charged with enforcing very strict regulations on air pollution, water pollution, much more strict than the federal government. Um, and then the problem came, though, when 
environmental regulations started to go kind of beyond that, the air and water pollution route. And so when they start talking about things like conserving beaches, conserving open access to beaches, uh, restricting private ownership of beaches, protecting, you know, endangered species that don't really have much of an effect on the landscape because um, so, so after he left office, he continued in politics, obviously, um, as he went national, he took on more national conservative advisors because California Republicans tend to be different from national Republicans, especially back in the 1960s. And so he started to kind of rail against kind of the excesses of the environmental movement, things like, you know, protecting these endangered species that nobody has ever seen, that nobody that are not good looking, (laughs) that nobody would ever keep as pets. And that kind of opened the door to a more conservative view of environmentalism that he kind of took into the White House. And again, he was surrounded by people in the White House that had a very different view of environmental um, resources and conservation and exploitation than the people that he had been surrounded with in California. So, um, you know, that's kind of the short version of my dissertation right there, I suppose. But, but yeah, it is kind of a demonstrating a transition over time from someone who is very kind of vocal about preserving clean air, preserving wide open spaces, water, and then kind of shifting over time as the policies kind of change. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so this was great. It was fun talking to you. Uh, do you have any, you know, what, what's next for you? What are you going to, where are you going from going to from here? So I'm working on a book called the Jasmine J A Z Z M E N how Duke Ellington, Satchmo Armstrong and Count Basie transformed America. And I'm using three of what I think were the Mount Rushmore jazz figures of uh, history to look at how lots of changes happened around them, including the way that I think those three guys helped set the table for the civil rights movement. And it's a book that grew out of my earlier books on the Pullman Porters and on the Negro Leagues baseball pitcher Satchel Page. And I'm having a blast. And if you can call it work to sit down and listen to Ellington Armstrong and Basie's music, That's not a bad way of making a living. Oh, definitely. That sounds amazing. And I look forward to uh, seeing that when it comes out. Terrific. So uh, thank you for joining me today, Larry. Thanks for having me on. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at workhistorians. For Larry Ty, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourselves and each other.